0: But I think that before all of those things, I think just really going back to what we were talking about before of just like, you got to grapple with the fact that like, whatever you think learning was supposed to be, you know, or whatever you think kids did in traditional school is not really what's happening, right? So you think a kid's learning from, you know, nine to four, they're not, (laughs) right? So there's all these things that you, you just believe about young people and learning and that learning looks this way. Learning looks like sitting down in front of a notebook and writing stuff down. Um, Learning doesn't look fun or learning doesn't look like, you know, um, going on a field trip somewhere, but it really can look so, so much like anything. So I think that's a huge thing that adults everywhere are going to just have to continue to work through is we've romanticized and modeled this idea of this is how learning looks. And we have to just like really let that go, which is a huge process.
1: As a young mother, I experienced a paradigm shift that transformed how I saw education and ultimately the world around me. I started this podcast, The Luminous Mind, to connect with and learn from people who are disrupting the status quo in how they learn, educate, and live in the world around them. Prepare for a paradigm shift. Light a candle, light your world.
0: Benjamin Franklin said, instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. You're listening to The Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman.
1: Today's Firestarter is Cassidy Younghands. Cassidy Younghands is a certified educator who taught seventh grade English in the public schools for five years before shifting her path towards self-directed education She interned at multiple alternative educational spaces, including North Star with 23 years of history and Houston Sudbury School in 2018 and 19 before founding Epic Life Learning Community in September of 2019. Epic Life Learning Community serves ages four through 18 in Carrollton, Texas. Welcome Cassidy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you be part of our conversation. You know, like we were saying before we even started recording, that we need to see these types of learning communities all over the place. But before we get into any of your background and what you're doing now, go ahead and tell our audience a little bit more about yourself. Sure. So I'm 28. I am from
0: Dallas-Fort Worth and live there now. I currently have a boyfriend that I live with, and I'm a kid mom. Um, I have an eight-year-old sister and four amazing parents and step-parents uh, who have helped raise me. Um, I have a lot of uh, outside passions besides just education, but education is my main passion, but I'm also interested in art and music and singing and um, creating art, and
1: uh, yeah that 's awesome well i'd love to hear like some background information you know in your bio. we read that you 're a certified teacher and that you taught in public school for five years before shifting to self directed education. you know Give us the background of like you know what it was like to be a teacher and then why you decided to switch
0: yeah, so kind of still back in about my myself it's funny because i've wanted to be a teacher since I was like two years old i would line up my Barbies and be like, here's what we're going to learn. And um, I had worksheets that I made for my dad and different things like that, that I was like, get something wrong so I can grade you. So I I loved playing teacher and um, it's something that I knew I wanted to do my whole life. And so I think I ended up going into public education with a little bit of an idealized version of what um, my role could be and what my impact could be. So I went and I became a seventh grade English teacher. I got out of college in four years, did the traditional path, was like, okay, I'm just going to go to be a teacher in the grades I want to do. So I did seventh grade Um, English was what I wanted to teach. And I taught for five years at one school that was a fine arts school of choice. So it was a public school in Dallas-Fort Worth, but it was also um, specifically focused on fine arts. And I taught there for five years, but what I kept seeing was like systemically, right? I can be the most open teacher. I can have my you know, classroom open after school for kids who need things. I can be that support. I can try to be creative with my lessons. But the reality is, is the system itself is quite oppressive to a lot of kids. And so kind of coming to that realization in year two or three um, was a lot. And then um, it was really great because actually Blake Bowles, who... Um, I think was the one that connected us for this (laughs) podcast, Um, he was a huge um, inspiration for me. He came down um, to speak at a conference that I was helping organize and him and I just talked and I was like, I'm just not, this is just not in alignment with who I am and I don't feel fit to do anything else. So that was tricky because I was like, okay, I don't love the system that I'm in. I love working with young people. What else can I do? So him and I spoke for a while, and we talked about, um, I was a little interested in self-directed education prior to speaking with him, and so, but I was like, I don't understand how I'm supposed to leave the traditional path and just, like, mail um, in it, all of that, and so it was really challenging, and you don't, nobody feels, I guess, well, maybe I didn't feel, and possibly a lot of other people did not feel equipped to leave this prepaid path that they've done pretty successfully. I was a pretty successful public school I, um The kids and I had great relationships. I had test scores, quote unquote, at the end of each year. And uh, so it's hard to really veer from one path to something that's uncharted and unfamiliar. And oftentimes there's not very many people who have done it before. So that kind of took me a while to get to that place where I was able to leave. But after five years, I did leave and... Um, it was definitely worth it. I could probably talk about all of that forever, so.
1: Yeah, well, and so when you're a public school educator, and I find it interesting that you said you were teaching, you're basically teaching a school of choice, so you're teaching students that choose to be there, and then that in of itself carries a little bit, I mean, it's not like a traditional public school where everyone's there just based off of zip code. You know, these are or children that chose to be there, right? Like in families. Yeah, I,
0: I can add to that. Yeah. So it was interesting because there was a certain percentage of the kids who were supposed to be within the district. So there was about, I think it was about 50% of the kids that went to the school of choice were supposed to be kids that were in the school district that the school of choice was in. And then the other 50% could be opened up to kids outside of that zip code area. Okay. Um, and it was an also a, because it's a fine arts school, there was even um, a process where they had to interview and do um, an audition. So it was definitely um, something where, you know, their parents had to be aware of what was happening. And, um, and they had to also have kind of a little bit of a gift coming in. Um, So it definitely was a unique experience, not just, I mean, comparative to a lot of the traditional um, public school experiences.
1: Yeah, that's, I, I think that's why it surprises me so much, because, you know, I, I know a little bit about charter schools, and I know that children who are there are usually, um, they tend to still be, they're there because they're choosing to be there, not like they're forced to be there. So, you know, they have a like a, the, the dynamic is a little bit higher, you know what I mean, with those types of children. So, you're saying that really it was the the system because even though this was like a school of choice and there was all this interviewing process, it's like the government bureaucracy, right, is like the problem that you dealt with mostly. Oh
0: my gosh, yes. So, you're you're really hitting the nail on the head around that because it's true. It's it's one of those things where um I went in thinking, like, oh my gosh, this is my ideal job. You know, I'm in a job where um, there's a lot of like self expression through music and arts. And I was telling you earlier, I love arts and music and those kinds of Mm -hmm. things. And so there was a lot of like encouragement for young people to be expressing themselves and perform and share what they're passionate about. So I was like, that's amazing. Um, And then, like you're saying, still though, even though, you know, we had, um, I was able to put, like a safe space sign in front of my door and have a gay straight alliance group and things like that, which are kind of um, outside of other public school experiences that I understand from some of my colleagues. It was very much more open so the kids could have like blue hair if they wanted to. Um, There was more creative expression that was held there and even still, right? And even still it was Mm -hmm. almost worse because it was like, oh, we're like, you know, open and we we wanna be outside of the box and creative, but at the very same time, they're like, yeah, but if we don't get 97% passing, Mm-hmm. it doesn't none of that other stuff matters all well, and of the other stuff goes out the window
1: and a lot of times you have to follow like a state curriculum so certain things are required and so it almost takes up so much time that kids aren't able to really find out their you work on those passions that they love right I mean like that's just this little side blur that's like there but it's not really something they can pursue with full force right like Right. And I was in a district
0: where there was three, six and nine week testing. So every three weeks, six week and nine week, we had to stop what we were doing in my class and take a test that was written by the district that was modeled after the STAR test, which is the standardized assessment in Texas. And so every three weeks, these young people were tested to make sure that they were on track to pass or do well in STAR. Wow. Um, so even though, right, we're in this progressive model, in theory, um, mm-hmm. within the public school system, again, there were just so many things that were holding us back. And then I ended up having to pull kids out of those amazing fine arts classes, right? As this public school English teacher, I'm like, oh, wait, you're not going to maybe pass this, you know, test. So I got to pull you out of your passion.
1: Oh, um, gosh. Yeah.
0: Right? So it look very weird to me. Didn't Didn't feel in alignment at all with how I feel like young people should be treated, but.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, and you were saying that you, you know, before you met Blake Bowles, that you had a little bit of background with self-directed education. I'd love to hear like your progression through that of like what you were learning and, you know, how you found that intriguing and that kind of thing. And then how that kind of worked to change that paradigm for you.
0: Yeah, totally. So I'll go back just a little tiny bit. So when I was younger, and um, when I was a, a learner, when am not a learner, we're always learners, sorry. When I was a student, <laughs> I went to a Montessori school from ages like four to nine. And I just remember that being an amazing experience for me. Um, and so I had a little seed planted there of like, there is some alternative, you know, progressive alternative possibly that already exists um, from my own experience as a child. So I went to public school and it was actually a huge shock for me. Because I went from this little community, a small community where everybody just accepted each other. And there was a lot of co-learning happening and individual learning happening to like this public school model. So I actually experienced that myself as a child a little oh, bit. Cool. And um, so it kind of planted a seed like, okay, there are, there's got to be more stuff going on out there. I'm not loving what I see. I don't think it's serving enough kids. Uh, I don't think it's healthy for them or for um, teachers for that matter. Um And so there's got to be some other systems that have, you know, are being created outside of the traditional model that I can check out. So during while I was teaching public school, actually, it's funny because um, our principal, again, I was telling you, she wanted us to think outside of the box. Um, so she would show us these amazing TED Talks, right? I don't know if you've seen uh, Sir Ken Robinson's Schools Kill Creativity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that she also showed us Logan LaPlante, who was 13 at the time when he spoke on this TED talk, he did one called Hack Schooling Makes Me Happy. Oh, yeah. And it was all about how he hacks his education. Right. Mm -hmm. And she shows us these videos in the context of the public school sphere during a staff meeting. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, you realize that you just totally like (laughs) maybe (laughs) now have to go seek out other options because it was very stifling to be sitting in her being like, yeah, so talk to kids about how they can hack their education within the system that's extremely confining and oppressive and tells them that they can't learn anything on their own. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Well, <laughs> so and, that was really challenging.
1: <laughs> and I feel like we waste a lot of kids' time, and then they don't have time to pursue their passion. They're exhausted at that point, you know, of trying to trying to work within the system. At least that's what I fear mostly, is that it's not really that they don't have a desire to hack their education. They just don't have time. You know, they don't have... We're expecting them to get all this other stuff done before before they can really work on the stuff that they love. It makes it really difficult for kids to even want to do that. Then the fire of their passion kind of blows out and, you know, they just get stuck in the same thought processes. Yeah. And so much of what we see if we actually step back and watch instead of trying
0: to you know, hold kids to like, you have to learn these prerequisites before you can get to XYZ that you really love. Oftentimes, once they get to what they really love, they actually have to incorporate a lot of what we thought they needed to learn first. But they can do that instead in their own creative way and their own natural mm-hmm. process of, you know, going into their passion deeply. And then a lot of those skills still are completely, you know, acquired, just not in the, the way that our linear progression in the traditional environment expects, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, we have a really weird... Uh, idea of thinking like you have to learn these steps but when we're working even when you're working in one specific skill you bring in so many other um, you bring in writing skills you bring in math skills we don't realize how we've separated all those things out when you're really working with your passion you're actually kind of pulling a lot of that stuff back in that's one thing I guess I learned as I was going through the experiences. Like we're all so worried about, you know, making sure these one specific skills are being worked on that we've really taken out the opportunity to do education like the rest of adults do it where it's all meshed together you know it's all Mm -hmm. working together well you also said in your bio that you worked at a couple different alternative education spaces like north star and the houston Sudbury school um and stuff like that so you know why did you decide to found the epic life learning community yeah well totally um
0: sorry, I'm going to back up like two seconds, because uh, there's a little bit of a gap in between. So from when I met Blake was when I was helping um, with a conference that Macarios Community School, which was the first democratic uh, school in Dallas-Fort Worth. I went there. So so backing up just to when I was still seeing all these videos and going, oh my gosh, what's going on? Hack School makes me happy, all of that stuff. I ended up being like, okay, there's got to be some alternatives out there. And so I looked, you know, locally in the area for progressive schools. Um, I found this school called Makarios. And so I just went there one day when I had a day off of um, teaching and was like, please tell me everything. And uh, a young person answered the phone and a young person was the one that gave me the tour. And I didn't even really figure out they were a young person until halfway through the situation because they were just so well-spoken and, and empowered. Oh, that's and cool. uh, when I visited there, um, they didn't have any job openings. They were still super new. But the owner, the creator, had said, I want to create a conference around self-directed education to spread awareness in Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, in the South about this alternative. And so that's when I got involved in creating the conferences um, called Self-Directed Path that Blake ended up coming down for. And then the next year we had Dr. Peter Gray come down. And then the next year we had Joel Hammond uh come down from Princeton he's uh I've talked to all three of those (laughs) that's awesome that's amazing I love all of them they're incredible humans and they've all we've had to bring them down from um, the north in different places to to share all about self-directed education here and it's been such a gift so through that process and then meeting Blake Blake kind of said okay like what do you want to what do you want to do to kind of help yourself feel equipped to move to the next phase so I um had to save up money. So my fourth year teaching, I was like planning my exit strategy. I was like, okay, I got to get out. Um, I got to save money. Um, and then I was also looking at internship opportunities for the following year. So I kind of decided for the year after I left school, like public school, that I was going to just spend time interning and uh, visiting different alternative spaces because there's so there, it's funny because I'm like, oh my gosh, there's got to be some progressive alternative. And there are, and there are a lot. There are actually, I mean, I wish there was still way more, but there are a lot, and there's a lot of variance Um, Within the different models um, that exist within alternative education, right? Because we go from like Waldorf and Montessori, and then you go kind of into um, more uh, like, you know, eclectic homeschooling, liberated learners model, agile learning, all of those different things. And so I decided to take a year, almost like a sabbatical year, to visit all these different types of learning communities because you can read about them all day and there's so much to read. And I definitely spent a lot of my time that fifth year teaching and that year interning, reading a lot of different uh, great books that have been published um, by people through this movement um, over the course of, you know, over 60 years and then way before we created public school. So with the reading combined with actually going and then seeing the spaces was ideal for me because I felt like I really was able to take theory and put it into application. Um, And so that was a really, really great experience. And so at Houston Sudbury School, I really got to see the Sudbury model and how it works for young people. And that was a really amazing thing because Sudbury is very much like if the kids request it, you can help, you know, support that happening. But otherwise, you know, you are very much just there as an equal person doing your own passions on, you know, your own way. So there's not it's not the same as like maybe how we have Epic a little bit now where we do have some offered classes. They're all opt-in. Um, but we kind of have a little bit of that Summerhill vibe. I don't know if you're familiar with Summerhill.
1: Um, I've heard where of that. there
0: where there's just a lot and, and agile learning centers oftentimes mm-hmm. do this too. At Epic, there's just a lot of different classes that we offer and liberated learners does this, but we of course allow kids to say no thank you at any time. So it was really cool though to see at Houston Sudbury School when even when you don't offer anything, right? In the mm-hmm. sense of, you know, formal let's hang out and learn something together. So it all happens anyway, and it happens in ways that you wouldn't expect. So I I met a young girl there that um, really it inspired me because I, I didn't really still understand how do you read? Um, how do you learn how to read <laughs> on your own? You know, and what? If, okay, you're nine years old and you can't read. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have a heart attack. Um, but it was seriously just, I watched her for three months, just not really thinking she could read and she would have to play games with someone else in order to be able to read the cards. And then one day she just decided she wanted to read. And within two weeks, she was, you know, sitting down with her friends and reading like Dr. Seuss books and different things like that. And then, you know, by the time I had left, she had already read multiple Harry Potter books.
1: Oh, wow. So, so It so. shows
0: how quick <laughs> um, if a kid really wants to learn something when their brain is ready, when they're ready to learn it it can totally happen.
1: Well, and did you see, um, I would think that in that kind of environment, there's no shaming going on. You know, like she's not, like Mm -hmm. in a a traditional school, you might, you know, if you were nine years old and you weren't reading, that might be a source of shame. You know, they'd put you with the slow learners or something like that. Um, uh, What was the, like the climate like in that environment?
0: You're completely right. I mean, it was a very, like, non-shaming environment. And if anything, some of the other learners would say, well, actually, you know, you can read this, this. Like, you can read these letters or you can read these words. So they would also, like, almost, like, say, actually, you're saying you can't read, but you can read some things. You might not be able to read everything yet. <laughs> um, so it's also interesting for, to see the young girl because she was like, I can't read. But it was like, well, but reading is a huge Scope and there's a a bunch of words that even I look at as an adult, and I have to figure out okay, how do how the heck am I supposed to say that? So yeah, (laughs) um, and what does that mean? So so it's a constant, right? Uh, Language is a constant acquisition. So uh, it was cool to see that other learners there were like, oh my gosh, no, actually we've seen you. So they reflect it back to each other, right? We've seen you do this learning, Um, and also and also it's like okay, if you aren't ready to yet, right? So at nine, nobody nobody was like, oh my gosh, at all. But and you know exactly a nutritional environment. Oh my goodness. Yeah, they yeah. probably wouldn't be in the grade that their grade um, is associated with.
1: Yeah. That their exactly. age is associated with. Yeah. And there is a lot of shaming in that, um, that, you know, a lot of kids would hide it. And I think it's cool that she was so open with her feelings about, you know, wanting to read, wanting, you know, and then they were supporting her versus like she was hiding it. Cause I think that's, what would end up happening in the public school system if a kid couldn't learn how to read and gasp. It happens all the time that, you know, Mm -hmm. a kid isn't grasping the concepts and they get all the way through school and find out they can't even read. But they are, they're scared to tell anybody or to talk to anybody about it because of that environment, for sure. So, you know, you went through the traditional, even though you had the experience of that self-directed learning, you still went through like the traditional education like a schooling process to prepare you to be a teacher you know what was Mm -hmm. that overall like uh, educational philosophy like like when you I just love the idea of thinking about like how we come we start at one point and we get to another you know what was that like some of those vast discoveries that you found in trying to change that educational philosophy
0: yeah, so are you asking about when I was a young person or as going with Epic now?
1: No, yeah, more of like that discovery of like, you know, you want to move towards a self-directed education, but how you change mm-hmm. that educational philosophy, because I'm sure there were some things like the nine-year-old um, who, you know, you want to watch a whole process of learning how to read, but were there other things besides that that were like, wow, I didn't realize that or I didn't realize this? Uh, as you oh, definitely do you want to talk about any of those yeah yeah so I think that some of
0: it also is like you have to reckon with I had to reckon with like when I really came to terms with what education kind of was and that I was literally gatekeeping whether they could go to the bathroom um, in the traditional system I had to kind of really cope with this idea that like I spent five years of my life thinking I was doing this really great thing for young people And in fact, I may have been, and most likely was, in various scenarios, even when trying to do my best, oppressing young people and using my power and all of these things that like you don't really see. And then I read the book A Different Kind of Teacher by John Taylor Gatto, and it just smacks you in the face. It's like, do you understand like that you think you're like this big savior, helping kids and all this stuff, and like really you're teaching them that their own voice doesn't matter and that you know all of these different things? And through being a part of this system, and so I think that having to come to terms with, okay, here is that I might have done some harm in the system, and that the only thing I can do now, right, is move forward and continue to grow and be in that growth process of understanding that there's a million oppressive systems that we're working within, and how do we create new things outside of that, that can then counter and eventually, you know, allow people to move in a different direction where they're not feeling so oppressed. So I think you have to kind of come to terms with what you've done, um, and also your own education, right? So, if you had a really great educational experience, or if you, you know, felt like you didn't have a good educational experience, doing all of that work as an adult yourself when you're moving into self-directed education, I think is absolutely necessary because you have to come to terms with your own experience and then also what you've done in the educational field before you can really be open to, you know, the new model
1: mindset. I think that's really powerful because think one of the reasons why we are having such a difficult time changing the structured classroom as it is, I mean, it basically hasn't changed since, you know, the inception of traditional public education. And they say that that's because there are so many teachers, they actually did really well in that system, and they perpetuate it, you know, they just keep it going because it worked for them. And so they feel like that that's true education, because they they were successful in it or something you know what I I mean just to add
0: just to add to what you're saying um, I had somebody uh, we had somebody come speak to some educators at one point and he made all the educators mad because the educators were like well you know it's such a great testament to us as educators when our kids grow up and become educators and the speaker he goes actually I think they grow up to become educators because that's the only job they've seen their entire education that's the only job they've been exposed to so that's an interesting thought too to go along with what you're saying there's this idea that teachers um when they're young people in school they you know they thrive in that environment and so then they perpetuate that environment and then also right we're not exposing other young people to a variety of industries and jobs and so then oftentimes that can also funnel them back into this loop of just constantly being in school being the student to being the teacher
1: yeah, it's like a really sick loop, <laughs> you know, never ends. Yeah.
0: And um, it can feed, right? It can feed into itself for
1: sure. Yes. Yeah. And then it never changes because of that. And I love the idea of where you're talking. It's almost like a, a reckoning or repentance, you know, of like, how did I add to the system that was so oppressive, you know, where we have to kind of do this self-evaluation. And I don't think that goes on enough. There's too much defense of like, what I'm doing is, you know, helpful, but we don't really look at it for what it is. You know, we're not really holding it's a mirror. So up much to work. Yeah.
0: yeah, we're not.
1: And it's so much work,
0: right? Public school teaching is a lot of work. If you really care and you're trying your best, it's a lot of work, right? I had 161 kids that I taught for one year, like a year at a time, 161 kids that I was supposed to teach English. Wow. Um, and so every time you give an essay, you have 161 essays to grade, right? And then they do revisions and then you have 161 revisions. And do you know what I mean? So if you really are the teacher that's looking at all those essays and you don't know I mean, really committing to those processes, you really are doing a ton of work. So it's also really like just frustrating and makes you kind of angry when you think about maybe some of that work was actually possibly damaging or not as helpful as you really
1: thought it was. Yeah. Well, it is, I mean, we don't recognize teachers for what they can be. I I think that's the saddest part when I see, you specifically see teachers unions being so defensive of that traditional school. And I feel like we don't give teachers enough credit to think that they can possibly teach the way, you know, that autonomy, give them the autonomy, I guess, to teach the way that they feel would be best for themselves or their students. We treat them, I think their own system treats them horribly, but then it's always cast that people don't appreciate them, you know, (laughs) and that we don't Mm -hmm. appreciate them for who they are. Right. What a fun (laughs) topic. Um, I'd love to know though, so like we were saying, you worked for a couple different alternative education spaces already, but why did you decide to found this Epic Learning Community in September of 2019?
0: Yeah. So, okay. So this crazy thing happened where after interning at a bunch of different places, you know, I was learning about um, all the different tools and ways of self-directed education, and I was able to bring those back. And actually on the bus ride back to the airport from Massachusetts, coming back to Texas from my internship at North Star, um, I got a call from um, my friend that was had been organizing the conference with me in the past um, that we had done in, in Dallas. And she called me and said, oh my gosh, okay, Macarios, that school that I mentioned to you earlier, um, Mm -hmm. the first school in DFW that was Democratic, is moving an hour away. They're moving locations, and they need to move an hour away because their founder is too far away from where they live. This is an amazing facility that they're going to get an hour away that's going to be way better for their kids, and so they need to move. And in that, of course, there were kids that couldn't make that hour drive, right, that aren't going to be able to. Maybe they're already 30 minutes the other way. DFW is pretty big. Um, And so they were moving from a Dallas suburb to Fort Worth. So it really was about an hour away. And so there were families that were like, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to make it over there. We love this model. We really believe this is the way we want um, our kids to be able to learn. And um, so another one of the parents that was affected by that, she felt that she was called to start something that would be local, that would be close enough to the families that were losing a space. Um, And so she was willing to front fund and finance that project. And my, like I said, my friend that had been doing this conference with me had spoken with her and the three of us kind of came together and were like, let's make this happen. Um, It it came together so quickly. And it was literally as I was coming back from my finishing my last internship. So right. Like, and I got back, I guess like mid March. And then from mid March all the way to September, we were just making, working, 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 trying to make this thing a reality.
1: That's cool. And, so it was really just out of need, almost a, like a market, the market was calling for it <laughs> type of thing. So the market was calling for it. And I think for me, um, Dallas is,
0: you know, it's where I grew up. It's where I'm from. And I do mm-hmm. feel that we don't have enough self-directed learning communities or options um, in this area at all. In the South in general, I feel like we're still kind of lacking. We have a lot of like homeschool communities, but oftentimes they're not very secular. Um, and so I, I feel very strongly uh, yeah. that our area really <laughs> needs it. Um, And so that was also kind of why instead of like going and being a part of a learning community that already existed somewhere else, I really wanted to start something because I also felt like there was a need here um, specifically because I would have loved to work at any of the communities that I interned at. They're all amazing.
1: That's cool. Well, and I love the idea that you're doing that in the community that you know and that you have that connection with. I think that's great. What are the challenges? I mean, I know, uh, you know, talking with Joel Hammond and, and a lot of those different Democratic school starters, I know there's a lot of challenges to starting this type of thing. You know, what were some of those and what did you learn from those challenges? I mean, there might be other people out there just like you that are like, hey, I want to start this kind of education for myself. Uh, Could you kind of walk them through maybe some things that they'd face?
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think the the thing that you just, uh, that when I
1: just explained what happened that came together
0: beautifully for me, but doesn't really come easily for most people when creating something like this is a team, right? Finding other people right where you are in your local area that want to create something with you. So it was great because I kind of had that come to me a little bit. But after, you know, spending a lot of time really, like you were saying, kind of networking in Dallas-Fort Worth, so you have these connections that then can reach out to you. So getting a team is a huge thing. Getting a team together that you can work with instead of starting something like completely on your own, I would say is huge. I think I learned that um, a lot of what I learned in just creating a learning community that's not, um, that doesn't have these, systems in the same way is that you really have to ground into relationship and be willing to have hard conversations. I think that was a huge part of creating these kinds of learning communities. You have to be willing to have hard conversations with parents, with each other, as people that are starting something together, because you can start t- something together and have tons of similar values and still have certain things that you just very much disagree on. So then how do you move forward? So having really hard conversations and leaning into that instead of being like, oh my gosh, another parent conversation, um, or whatever, uh, was super important, but also like a hard growing process. Because I think as a public school teacher, I was almost sheltered from a lot of that. Like you think you have to deal with a lot as public school teacher with families, but you really don't like you get some emails, maybe when you're younger, if you have younger kids, um, you deal with parents more, but when you're, um, with, you know, middle school and high school, you really don't in the same way. Uh, and you don't work with other adults in the same way. I had my own classroom and every day I would shut my door and I was with kids like the majority of the day. And I didn't have other teachers that I planned with quote unquote. Like I had, I was the only seventh grade English teacher at that school. So I didn't even have to sit down with other teachers and have conversations about things we wanted to do together and make decisions. I just did them. You know what I mean? I just did it. So I think that I had to learn a lot about working with others and then working with adults. And then just the whole idea of having hard conversations when you create something like this that you want to not be super power-structured and hierarchical and you you Mm -hmm. want everybody's voice to be heard, whether they're kids or whether they're adults, you have to have hard conversations. That's a big one.
1: That's awesome. What were some of those conversations like? I mean, I think when we have a system... Uh, for example, (laughs) you know, we have that school system. I'm going to say that again, but we seem to think that we can just walk through things and not really like they've got it all planned out for us. And, you know, there's all of this, um, like we know one step and then the next step and um, those types of things. And so I agree with you that there's not enough like collaboration and there's not enough, you know, that kind of thing working together. We're just working them through that system. But what were some of those hard conversations that you had to have with people?
0: So I think that part of um, going, just going back to like the philosophy of of Epic is that we're co-creating a learning experience with the child and the parent. Mm-hmm. So we have to have conversations all the time about like, as a child, what do you value and what do you care about spending your time doing as a parent? What do you value? And really, you know, are the few things that like, really, you're just like, oh my gosh, I really need you to do math once a week or something. Um, and then, you know, from our perspective as Epic, I'm not willing to force any child to do anything that they're not willing to do. I'm willing to iterate and try so many different options with them if they're willing to try them, but I'm not willing to force them to do something just because their parent feels they need to, or because a system feels they need to. So that conversation in itself with every family is a hard conversation because you're saying, you know, where can we meet in the middle? Um, where can we meet so that you have your needs met as a parent and your concerns are met and you're get, you know, getting enough information that you understand what's going on with your child's education? And then that the child gets their needs met and is able to explore and have that freedom. Um, And then that we as EPIC still stay true to, you know, that value that we're not going to, if a kid says no, thank you, we're going to respect that.
1: Yeah. I do find it interesting when I talk to people who are starting like these democratic schools, that it really is a challenge to try to get parents um, unschooled or (laughs) de-schooled, what I should say, because. I mean, a lot of us went through the system and we think we know what education looks like, but when we're watching it in our children in one of these, and and it may not feel right to your soul like to move them through that system, but then there's like these alarm bells that go off like when they're not moving through those milestones or through a system. We feel like, oh my gosh, you know, this isn't going to turn out well, or we're just scared about what it should be. So I really understand, like, trying to train your parents might be some of the toughest things that you have to do. Do you have, like, a, you know, when you sit down with them, um, I, I would imagine most people probably come to you because they want this type of thing, but do you have some type of, you know, standard, I guess, talk or something that you training or something for the parents? Yeah, we try. I think that um, that's still something that we're growing
0: in as as Epic specifically. I'm really grateful for organizations like wider, like um, the Alliance for Self Directed Education, mm-hmm. and um, you know, podcasts like this, Blake's podcast, Akila Richards' podcast, um, yeah. different resources that are being created as a movement is has been really helpful. Because to be honest with you, right, we're a startup. There's so much to be done, and um, onboarding the parents is definitely a um, a process. And also, it's not just I want to support them, right, because kind of like you heard me talking about my journey, like, it wasn't wrong for me to be scared that that nine-year-old couldn't read, right? Yeah, like, it wasn't yeah. wrong. Like, that was, that was a natural thing, and a lot of parents are going to have that same response, and, and it came from my traditional, you know, English teacher background of, like, oh my gosh, how's she going to, like, function? Um, but then I got to see it in real time, this girl go through this process, and parents don't have the luxury or the time to always see things like that, that come to fruition for another child or for their own child before having to make this decision to do something alternative. So then how do you package those kinds of experiences that I was able to have or that, you know, children in other places have been able to have to help parents understand that it's really possible. And then, you know, I think it's fair for parents to say, well, that's very anecdotal.
1: Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And so
0: that's challenging, right? Because um, there are, you know, there are some statistics and there's some data points um, that, you know, again, Dr. Peter Gray and Gina Riley and other people have created um, and Star has some great statistics too. And they're still very limited to small groups of people and they're self- oftentimes they're self-reported. Um, so there is some, you know, it's a little slanted and not mm-hmm. extremely reliable. And so that's really tricky because like it does feel very true in my soul. Like it's, it's an alignment thing, right? Like I believe that this is the kind of education that young people should be able to have access to. All young people should have the choice. But to onboard parents to get to that same place, it's, I mean, the amount of work I had to do for myself to get there, you know, as a parent, I can only imagine. And I'm also not a parent. So I feel very, sometimes very, um, not imposter syndrome, but something like that, right? When I'm trying to tell them Mm -hmm. like, oh, here's how your your kid's going to be fine. It's like, well, (laughs) are you a parent? You know, so that, that's a little tricky for me too sometimes because I understand that like as a, a person who wants to have children, I'm going to have to grapple with all of this on another level when I have kids. Yeah. Like I, and, I, and I'm someone in the movement and I'll still have to be like, okay, oh, I, everything's fine. You know what I mean? And yeah. <laughs> have, call other people that are in this and talk to talk me down a little bit too. Yeah. Just because you have family and stuff that question and sorry, yeah. you have outside people too in the society at large that make it even more challenging.
1: Yeah, I really love the fact that you didn't put any shame on the parents for being worried about that, because I think in the movement, we kind of get like that, like we get, um, and I feel like part of it, one of the reasons why we're always praising this style of learning and not really looking, like you said, I mean, it's very anecdotal, is because the only way we could experiment with this was like homeschooling, and as a, you know, when you have your children at home, and they're supposed to be learning, you become very, defensive and protective of that and so you don't want to show the nastiness of it you know what I mean or you don't want to show like the real and raw side like this isn't we just want to show like the Mary Poppin side of it and not like the what we should really be worried about type of thing yeah the
0: vulnerable side of it. yeah I think the, that's yeah. so true because you are in a defense mech. I felt that way. I mean, even when I left public education, right, I felt like I needed to be defensive to the public educators that were asking me, like, what the heck are you doing? You're such a good teacher in the system. Like, why would you leave? What are you thinking? So I felt that same way. So I could see definitely how parents would feel defensive when they've made this alternative choice and then have people constantly, you know, questioning it or wondering or, you know, not understanding. And and then their kids get, have you know, come home and say, well, you know, am I not learning what I'm supposed to be learning? Because so-and-so says that, you know, in public school, they're learning this. There's so much.
1: Yeah, it's a real challenge. I love what Blake Bowles um, said. And I've, uh, you know, I interviewed other democratic schools. And and that was kind of the consensus of like, you know, we look at all the anecdotal information, but really it came down to the fact of like, it's not hurting them. You know, I'm not i'm not hurting those children that in fact yeah, you know they're you're not mm-hmm. yeah they're going to end up being no better off or no worse off maybe <laughs> than than they would be in their traditional school for sure and i think that puts a lot of parents at ease like we kind of have this like oh they're going to go to the school and they're going to become the next einstein you know but really the reality is that they just become the people who they're supposed to be and that we know that they're really not any worse off than they might be in like traditional school. And so I think like keeping it, um, keeping those expectations at a normal level <laughs> maybe, or, or I think as an educator, sometimes we have, you could have a Pollyannish view. I mean, I do that a lot when I coach parents. I, I talk about all the amazing things that they can do, and really, it's not as simple as that, as it is like you're just not going to hurt them any more than they would be <laughs> in the traditional mm-hmm. school. So, and they might be happier, you know, on top of that. So, completely. Like,
0: you know, it can get tricky too when you, so kind of like when you go to homeschooling, I've seen something similar happen when someone starts a learning community. So, maybe I was a homeschool parent before, or maybe it's just me, right? And I've decided I'm going to start a you know, liberated learners model. And I get so like dogmatically entrenched in understanding everything that has to do with liberated learners and their history and the way that every school is supposed to work. That's a liberated learners model and all of that stuff. And then I try to, you know, replicate that and really become defensive over that specific model. And that can become a problem too, Mm -hmm. because, um, and this is something that Blake Bowles touches on, which I love That sometimes kids are, you know, there's a certain type of learning community that works for them for some point in their life, and then and then they need to move to some other, you know, hybrid of type of learning. So sometimes, you know, they spend some time in a Montessori school, and then they spend some time at an Agile learning center, and then they spend, you know, some time a gap year in eighth grade where they go and they stay with their cousin, and then they come back, and then they, you know what I mean, and then they go to Sudbury school for high school, and then you know they get a homeschool diploma, and then. They go, you know, to Berkeley and make their own degree, like Blake or something. You know, it's, it's, there's not one linear way. Sometimes they might go to public school for a few years. Um, And so I think that we need to be really careful when we get defensive over a specific learning model that we've decided our learning community is, because that also limits us from looking at our community's needs and iterating um, and trying different things. And we get very dogmatic and then we get defensive and get really, um, we romanticize that dogma. Um. So mm-hmm. if I just think, oh, the Liberated Learners model is just the answer for every learner, that Liberated Learners model would fix everything for them. Then
1: we're back in public school again. Yeah, we're back Same to thing. reiterating that, uh, you know, over and over. One
0: model works for
1: everyone. Yeah, right. Exactly. One system is going to fix it for everyone. Yeah. Right?
0: So it doesn't matter if it's like, you know, a really cool uh, self-directed alternative. If we get really dogmatic about it, it just becomes a problem in itself, too.
1: Yeah, and it stops the learning and the growth for the whole community. I mean, when we, right. we think we have the answer and we are the answer, <laughs> then nobody selling not, it. Yeah, no, and then you're not um, willing to listen to like what might work better and, and change and grow, you know, as a yes. community for sure. So It's so true because that's something that
0: I did not want to happen when we were creating this learning community is I did not want to feel like a salesperson. I do not want to sell your kid on self-directed learning or sell you on self-directed learning. I do not want to convince you to do something as a parent that is not your best judgment. That's not what I want to do. That isn't, it's not in alignment with who I am. And I want to create a community that is available. That's really open, but also, but completely understands that you may come and spend six months with us. You may come and spend five years with us. Um, you may come and learn about that you can leave public school and that's enough for you to be like, okay, I choose to stay now, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I know I have options. So like really not attaching ourselves as a learning community to trying to just get numbers or to, you know, again, be dogmatic about our model specifically. It can help open up um, a different kind of service to the community, like you're saying, that allows for iteration and adjusting and growth and feedback, which is huge. Um, and I think that f- that gave me a lot of freedom that I was scared of. I was really scared of that um, being a thing that I was going to have to do if I started a learning community was like, sell it. Yeah. If that makes sense.
1: No, that makes complete sense. Well, and I'd love to hear like your philosophy, maybe going with that. Sometimes when we start a school, we want to create like a mission, but I'd love to hear like, what's the, the points or the mission that you have basically for your school? What's the messages that you want to kind of be the overarching theme throughout the learning?
0: Yeah. So I think like a lot of it is, it it does go back to like holding space and also being very present. So having space where young people can come from, you know, and we specifically, we serve ages four to 18 and offering like all sorts of different resources that they can have at their disposal and empowering them to engage in those resources and engage with any of their own interests while still being these supportive facilitators that are present that are willing to dive into any of your interests with you, that are willing to help you extend interests or learn something new if you need to in order to get to a specific goal. I think that we just want to be a space where we have like a rich, supportive space for people to grow and be intentional and engaged. We want kids to feel like they can create their own life. I think that's a big thing. So like kids being able to take you know, what we've held space for them to do at Epic and then really feel empowered to move in just from wherever they are at age seven or age five, just start creating their own Epic life now. You don't have to wait, like you were saying before, um, you don't have to wait until you're 18 and you're done with, you know, you know, the check boxes of the diploma. Let's do it now. And what would that look like, right? So that sometimes is some of our first questions to kids is like, what would your perfect day look like? And what, you know, how can we make that, what your days actually are like?
1: I love that. Well, and I think that sometimes when we we have a school, uh, that school is like that's what we think about during that school time. But it sounds like what you're trying to do is create, you know, this isn't just about a school. This is an education that's part of a way of life. Do you know what I mean? Like even being able to talk to the parents in an open dialogue and and that kind of thing and not take away like their freedom, you know, even or to oversell it, like you were saying um, that, you know, you're not just an educator. This is like how you live your life. This is who you are versus like trying to be a salesman or an educator or whatever. This is seems like the philosophy is more of a way of life. I love that you say that. I think that's so true. And I hope that that's what, you know, our learners
0: feel as well. And that's kind of, I guess, ties completely into what I was saying before too, about like, we want kids to live their epic life now, right? So we want it to be a way of life, right? Not, you're, just, you're not just coming here for your learning and then you leave. Right. And this is just a one moment of your entire life experience, which is all learning. Right. And is all, you know, having hard conversations and being in community. Like you're saying, it's all of those things. It's a way of life. It's integrating things that um, I think a lot of us yearn for, but um, don't have space or support to integrate.
1: That's awesome. So, what does that space look like? I'd love to kind of know what your facility looks like. I mean, if learning can happen anywhere, what? um, How does your facility help to support that? Does that make sense? Like, completely. When we we think of schools, we we think of you know science labs, (laughs) and we think of you know all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I wish that we could. that we could eventually build, you know, something like our own, you know, and build it where there's like, you know, a bunch of natural lighting and a lot of really intentional spaces for young people. I know that there's amazing architecture that's, you know, done. I've seen some stuff in Japan and different places that just would be, ah, like life-changing because I do think that this specific physical environment can have an impact. Right now we are renting from a church. Um, We struggled um, to find a place that was commercial that had um, a lot of nature um, and land that kids could play on. And so we, um, we ended up collaborating with a Unitarian Universalist church, and we rent from them. And it's a great space. We actually get access to, I think, probably 10 rooms. Um, some of them are like smaller classrooms. And then there's, a, there's probably two or three bigger rooms that all of our kids and more can fit into um, and have like our community meeting and things like that. So we have, and we have different spaces for kind of the different developmental levels that we have at EPIC. So since we have ages four to 18, you don't see them all doing the exact same thing every day, right? A four-year-old might have a very different way they want to structure their day and a very different type of support that they want or need um, than a 17-year-old. So we have kind of different areas that they can, um, that they start their day in. So Like the youngest group is called foundation and they have an area where they all sit in the morning and do, you know, snack and have like a small circle time. It's a very short thing, but you know, they have their little area where they have developmentally appropriate toys and things that they can interact with. And then the middle group also has a, an area that's similar for their age group where they meet in the morning and, um, and then the oldest group. So the youngest group is called foundation. The middle group is called exploration and the older group is called direction. And I'm not saying ages because it, we want it to be very fluid and really just based on like where you are as a young person, what you need and what, which structure is where you kind of want to be within Epic at that moment. But generally it's like four to seven, eight, and then eight, seven, eight to 11, 12, 13, and then 11, 12, 13 <laughs> to 18. Um, Kind of really depending on what each kid wants. Because we have, that's again, that's a conversation we have. It's like, do you want to kind of move into the next group or not. And we don't keep them isolated by any means in those different areas. But we find that in the morning, um, we wanna provide some developmentally appropriate connection time within a little bit of a smaller age range. Um, And then uh, there is like the whole space is open for all the different learners um, throughout the day and the afternoon for classes and different things like that. Um, They just kind of have their own home base sections of the church, which is nice.
1: That's cool. Well, and I love the areas that you have. I'm actually trying to write them down um, because I yeah, like foundation, exploration, and direction. Yeah, because I really think that if you were, you know, an older teen coming into this, uh, you might need to go back to that foundational level. You know, of trying to figure out who you are. And, and honestly, it's so what's cool. Really important Some to of you the and, older
0: kids like go play with the younger and middle kids, and you see them like filling these gaps in their themselves that they needed. And they do that on their own, like you're saying. It, it's incredible. Or you see sometimes some kids that are like, "Oh, I can really bond with a couple, a couple a kids a couple years older than me, and this is a really, you know, riveting conversation. I wouldn't have gotten to have if I was limited."
1: That's amazing. Well, I love the idea too that maybe the facility doesn't look like what you would think a regular school is, and and really what you're when you talk about providing them a space, it's more like, you know, support, collaboration. Um, maybe people to bounce ideas off of, that kind of thing. Do you feel like that's more of like what the space provides is kids to kind of discover who they are versus like, you know, sitting down and, you know, oh, I want to learn this or whatever, but it's more of a support system, is that?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that that's a huge thing. Um, I think that because there are classes, like if you picture our regular day, there's usually one or two classes happening at any time that kids could be involved in. And at the same time, we also have um, different resources at their disposal. So yes, we hold this great space. And I think a lot of it really is holding space for them to de-school, like you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. um, holding space for them to just dive into their own interests. Um, But we also provide, like we have an electronic drum kit and an electric guitar and an amp and a a guitar. And we have uh, a 3D printer and we have a bearded dragon and we have a therapy dog last year. And we have tons of art supplies and we have um, like tinkering things and things for uh, coding and you know computers and different things like that. Yeah, so we have different things like that, um, and so there's also a lot to engage with. So it's it's definitely not an empty space by any means, but it is like we we bring in materials and tools that make sense for the learners that we have. Um, so we also have, you know uh, have a community garden outside. We also have um, like some skateboards and scooters and things like that. Kids can bring their own. Um, And so it's, that's also cool because we also have learned, you know, the process of like, okay, these are epic scooters versus this is your personal scooter. And okay, what are our agreements on on who gets to use what? So there's lots of those kinds of conversations that happen throughout, you know, the day and just the way that we run a community, right? We had to figure out, okay, so this is, you know, John's scooter. How does everybody know it's John's scooter? And if it's John's scooter, does anybody else get to ride John's scooter? Or is he, do you have to ask him first? Like, what's the process, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And that process might be different for each kid and they might have different preferences. And so then we have conversations as a community of like, okay, how do we find a practice that works for us? And then how, if that practice doesn't work, then we try something else. And so that's, I'm digressing into that, but that's another element of what we do at Epic is figuring out how do we live in community together? Where does my freedom extend until it infringes upon your freedom?
1: I love that. I actually, that was my next thing I wanted to ask you about because, you know, we grew up, we grew up in schools that were very authoritarian. Um, a lot of people believe like if you're not there giving children discipline and telling them what to do or whatever, there's just going to be, it's going to be like Lord of the Flies kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you handle um, strife or, you know, disciplinary problems amongst, you know, the members of the community or the students? Sure.
0: Yeah. So the first thing I, what I was just mentioning is called community awareness meeting. And we have that for about 15 minutes, three times a week. And we do really ask that at least the middle group and older group, we really, really are like, we're not like, I'm not going to force you to come, but we really would appreciate if you would come just because we, we do think it's like, if we're going to create community practices and we don't have community members in the conversation, right. It doesn't yeah. work. Um, so, so that was, you know, that was a conversation, Um. but they definitely agree to, and, and they understand that like, this is a way that we create um processes together and so we have this meeting called community awareness meeting and it is an agile learning tool so if you know about agile learning centers it's a major um pillar of what they do to run their centers Um, and it's all about living in community so uh, if you have a problem with something going on in the community not something with going on going on with an individual like if you and me rebecca are having like a little tiff you know we're having a fight or a misunderstanding that's kind of a different thing But if I'm talking about like the situation with John where like I'm bringing my scooter and everybody keeps using my scooter without asking me and I have a problem with that and I want to understand, I want to know what the community thinks about it. So you would bring that to the meeting. Like, you know, um, Tom would bring that to the meeting and put that up as an awareness. So it's not that it's a problem. It's an awareness. It's something he's aware of that's happening in the community that he maybe isn't cool with and wants to see what's going on with everybody else. And so then we have a conversation, okay, is this something that we're seeing happening? Do we like, do we agree that it's kind of something that we should address? And then we talk about why do we need to address it? Is the need that, you know, John wants to feel respected is, you know, or, or is it, you know, if it's multiple learners, is it, is there a need to feel respected? Is there a need? Because if something happens to the scooter, it will break and we won't know who did it. And we won't know who can pay for it. You know what I mean? And so okay. we have lots of conversation. And then we say, okay, what are some options of things we can try of practices we can do? So. Um, maybe we label John's bike that it's John's, and we um, and everybody. If you're going to use someone's personal um, scooter, you need to ask them first. You know what I mean? And so, and then we try that for a week, and we come back to the meeting next week, and we say, "How's that going?" Um, and if it's not going well, we we iterate and we try something else, or is it it's going well, but we need to change this one caveat to it. Um, mm-hmm. And then those practices kind of become norms in the community, so they kind of just over time, once they're an effective practice, they become integrated. Um, and so once we integrate them, we don't have to like keep going over them um, because they're just naturally occurring in the community. Yeah. And then if they need to be adjusted, you know, that's, then we can always come back to them. There's not, not anything that's like a set in stone rule in those practices. So that's how we do the bigger community altogether, working together to, um, to have a harmonious, you know, community culture. But then if we have a conflict, so again, if it's like Rebecca and Cassie were having, you know, a disagreement because, you know, I said I was going to use that stick but you really thought you were going to use that stick, but you put it down and you didn't tell me you were going to come back and use it. You know what I'm saying? One of those yeah. things, right. That happens. And so what we really ask the kids to do, we are really trying to teach them this because this is something that a lot of kids haven't really been yeah. um, supported in doing is just taking a, a couple deep breaths and checking in with your body. Right. Yeah. Like how often do we do that as adults when we get, Triggered. I don't. Um, think or something happens at all.
1: <laughs> I mean, personally, I struggle
0: so much yeah, doing yeah. it. Right, and, and it's because I was told at some point in my you know development that that wasn't as important, mm-hmm. right, as something else. As you know, my self care and my internal you know connection with my mind and my body isn't as important as what's on the board or whatever, right? So, so we we try to really encourage them to do that, and we do the for younger kids we do the blow a bubble into our hands. So we'll hold our hand out, and they'll blow a pretend bubble. So to kind of help them with the breathing thing, we try to make it fun. Um, and oftentimes it's not, there's not a staff member that's there to intervene when something's going on. So we try to help them learn to have those conversations with themselves and also support each other. So if an eight year old kid sees a six year old kid about to get, you can tell that the six year old is about to get angry. The eight year old might go over and go, Hey, blow a bubble into my hand. Like, and it's so not, and there's no loadedness to it. It's not manipulative. It's just something that we've kind of brought in and that they're integrating into, um, a tool that they have. So the first step is of course to like take a deep breath and, you know, kind of connect with yourself yeah. um, and figure out what your needs are, but then, you know, try to communicate to the person that you have an issue with. Right. So we kind of teach the kids to first talk to the person you have a you know, problem with and share with them, like, you know, what your need is really trying to do nonviolent communication, even though it's harder for younger kids. Yeah. Um, but kind of saying like, you know, when you did this, I made me feel this, you know, would you be willing to do this? you know, from there, if that does not work, right, if they're not able to come to some kind of resolution from there, then they're, you know, um, empowered to reach out to either a a staff mentor, or there's um, a bunch of learners that have volunteered to actually be mediators. Um, So those kids are, you know, volunteers in, in community meeting, they stand up, everybody knows who they are. So you can also, you know, Quickly find, you know, my sister Clara went to Epic, for example. So, Clara might be outside at that time, and there might not be a staff member out all the time because it's self directed learning and we trust you. But they might go, Hey, Clara, we're struggling with this conflict. Could you come over and support us? And then, you know, any other learner or staff can do that at that time. Um, But we try to really support them in moving through it on their own. And then, uh, like, if a staff member comes in and it's still there's just like there's too much tension, maybe there needs to be a day, maybe there needs to be more conversation with peers, um, we have a group called culture committee. So say something happened like continuously, right? Like if you and I had a conflict where I was like, this was my stick and I was playing with it. And you were like, no, it was my stick. And then we just keep having issues over this stick and we're not changing our pattern. Um, Sometimes we bring that to a group called culture committee, which is all of those kids that I told you about that volunteer to mediate. They also volunteer to be a part of a committee um, of people that just really hear issues that are recurring in the community. So if there's a recurring issue, we had a kid that just wouldn't stop spitting at people, oh, um, wow. for example. And I mean, it wasn't, it, it was, for whatever reason, it's just like, this is what he did when he was really mad. He just spit at people. Um, and I think there were times where we tried to intervene as staff and, and help mediate. Um, there were times where other kids did. Um, and it just really didn't, you know, uh, pan out. But when we brought it to culture committee, um, they, he was really validated. Um, the other kids could almost like ground into what you know maybe why he was spitting they asked a lot of really great questions about like did something happen before you spit um when you spit how does that make you feel is there something that you also that feels like that when you spit but it's not spitting that you could do when you're angry like questions that I'm not even thinking to ask as an adult and solutions and ideas and also just validating what he's going through while still holding that like hey we're not going to spit at people though right like yeah yeah
1: That's really awesome that it's like a mixed range.
0: Yeah, it's like a mixed range uh, age group, too. So it's like kids that, you know, could be from eight to 18 or a little bit younger, sometimes talking to those kids um, about what's going on with them.
1: I love that idea. I think it shows, you know, what Peter Gray talks so much about that sometimes those mixed age groups are so much better about helping, you know, providing the necessary and needed tools for other kids than more so than an adult could ever do, you know, because they have, um, they're maybe closer in age, they understand more of maybe that the feelings that that kid may be struggling with more so than an adult with an adult brain, you know, (laughs) that
0: makes it completely. Yeah. And I love that. It's so beautiful to feel that they can do that because then when we, we can actually bring things, I feel like I bring things to them and I know they're going to have ideas I didn't think of. And I know that that's something like I knew philosophically going in, but to actually see that all come to fruition and really be true has been just really cool because I mean, I thought it in theory, but it's been really cool to actually see that
1: happen. Yeah. That's really awesome. Well, I love the fact that you're teaching that mindfulness. I feel like even today as an adult, like I really can't come into full, like I don't understand myself as well as I could if I had learned skills like this as as a young child, like, you know, how am I really feeling? And what, because I think there's so much emotion going on in our world right now. And a lot of us are totally clueless, like, what's really the feelings behind that, you know, type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear more about like that democratic understanding, you know, whenever we hear about democracy, sometimes it's put forth in positive light. But I feel like lately, we all have this idea like that, uh, what is it that the the wolf and the sheep get to decide what's for dinner, and then, you know, that there's always a segment of the population that kind of gets screwed over, <laughs> basically, or, um, you know, that kind of have to conform to what everybody else wants, and is it different in, like, a democratic school, or is it just that kind of thing, like, okay, well, we took a vote, and, yeah, whatever you're doing is wrong, and, you know, I, I don't know, or however you feel is wrong, like, what's the, does that make sense, like, with the democratic. It completely makes sense. Everything it, you're saying makes sense. So I'm just trying
0: to also figure out how to respond without like, um, lumping a specific type of self-directed education in that category. Because yeah. in my experience, sometimes very, uh, self-directed learning communities that use, that try to use a one-to-one direct democracy where there is actually a vote, um, is different than Epic. Um, but I did intern at places where that happened, right? Where they're was a school meeting every day. And, you know, if you showed up, you showed up. And if you didn't show up, you didn't get a vote. Everybody got one vote, whether you were an adult or a kid. And yet the reality was, like you were saying, to a point, the stronger voices, the, you know, people that are able to get everybody on their team Mm -hmm. or even just that have more friends or whatever their leverage is can really push an agenda. It's a real thing. It is a real concern, um, in my opinion, that we need to be careful for. And I think also adults do it and they don't realize it. So you think you're not exerting extra, you
1: know, um, power when you have just yeah.
0: one vote. But if you're the one raising your hand, talking all the meeting,
1: you know. Yeah, you have the persuasive power, basically. And in the
0: bigger society, the adults do have the power. So it's hard to like say that that wouldn't already, of course, come into play. I mean, I think that's something we just always have to acknowledge to younger people. is like, you're going to constantly feel like I have this like power thing over you and I'm, we're going to be constantly dismantling it. And I'm going to be working on it all the time. Um, and it's fair that if, if you question it. Because everybody in the world is, you know, oppressing you to a point, in my opinion. So it's fair to feel like every adult's going to try to do that. But so I think there's just a lot to work on as, again, as an adult in a self-directed learning community to just really watch yourself and also have those open lines of communication so young people can tell you, like, hey, I, I feel like you're really just making this decision without, but we could all decide together or whatever, you know. Um, So yes, back to what you were asking me. If you look at a democratic school and you think about it like using a one-to-one direct democracy, those kinds of things can happen, in my opinion, and it is a problem. What I love, love, love about Thomas and Nancy, who created the Agile Learning Centers, they blew my mind. I went to the Aero Conference, which is the Alternative Education Um, resource organization conference, and it blew my mind when they said, what about, yeah, those seven kids voted yes, but what about those three kids that voted no? Like, what about their need? Is there a need that they have that's not going to get met now? And is that really how we want to function in a new type of community that we're creating, that we're wanting to empower kids? And we're still going to hold this structure that we know in the US as a whole also doesn't work, right? Because there's a certain group that's represented and there's groups that aren't. And there's people that's needs are getting met and there's people that aren't.
1: And there's like weaker societies that never get a voice and get I mean, yeah. almost taken advantage of in in a way. Completely and then I think too, I mean I think that's what's fueling a lot of our frustration our our community now is that You know, we all want autonomy over our own lives, and we just don't feel like we really have a choice in it. You know, it's always laid out to us by the powers that be of how things are going to go out, and it's always for the strongest in the community, not for the individual person who just wants to live a good life, (laughs) you know, type of thing. Right. So. Right. So I think the
0: way that we do it at Epic is a little bit different. So it's, it's kind of like when I was telling you about the conversation with the parent and the kid and the staff member, um, but with all the young people. So when we're in those community awareness meetings and Tom is like, hey, not cool people are riding my scooter, mm-hmm. right? Um, when we come up with practices, we're all just brainstorming. We're throwing practices out there. Okay, maybe John puts his scooter over in the other corner so everybody knows it's his. Maybe, do you know what I mean? Like there's so, mm-hmm. yeah, we, and there's no bad idea at that phase of the meeting And then what we do is we say, okay, what's something that we're all willing to try? Not our favorite idea, right? You know what I mean? What's the best idea? It's what's something that we can all like consent to trying for a week. And then we check up on it and see how it's going. And then we can always try something new next week or iterate something else or even sooner than next week if it needs to be sooner. Um, If it's like a pressing thing, right? We have the meeting three times a week. And so that's more how we do it. So instead of saying, okay, let's all vote on this rule right? And it's going to be, you know, seven to three, you know, the pe- rules pass that John can't bring his scooter or that John brings his scooter, but- um, Everybody gets to ride know, it. He just says- Right. And that's it. the rule. <laughs> yes. And that's just the rule. And so it's not as, not nearly as the whole point of right, agile learning communities is it's not as agile. The whole beauty of what I love about the agile learning process is none of these, there's not these big, heavy rules. It's like, what's the practice we're currently using for that? And then is the practice supporting, implementing, you know, the awareness not happening in the future? Like, is it working? Um, is it becoming a norm? Uh, and then that's just how it works. So it's not something that we have to then, when a new kid comes in, here's all the rules. Here's the big rule book um, of all of the rules we've made in our democratic community. You know, read up yeah, make sure you don't break any rules, right? It, it's so It's so different than that. And it's much more like, these are integrated practices that we do as a community that we definitely still help, you know, the learners understand, but it's not this big, heavy can't change, feels like you can't change it, it feels very, um, I don't know if I'm saying bureaucratic, it feels very like paperwork heavy, there's a lot when it comes into that, that can happen, but I love the more consent-based model that Agile uses, yeah. we use that at Epic.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping that as a society we could learn to get to that, where, um, back to that individual rights, you know, where each one of us have a right to kind of uh, pursue our own life, liberty, and happiness, and And I think it's important, it's invaluable to teach kids how to debate and whatever, but but I I wish we could get to a place where we just don't want to step on another person, you know, (laughs) that we just, like, we're okay with, like, okay, that person, you know, this is his thing, and this is what he wants, and it's important to him, and so you know, we leave it alone, even though the rest of us want to ride that kid's scooter, you know, type of
0: thing. Completely. Anyway. Completely. So. And that, you know, that's, that's something that we're seeing in the society that we have right now too, right? It's like mm-hmm. sharing freedom and we're seeing that with, you know, COVID-19 and face masks and all of that kind of stuff, right? Of just like, you know, different people having different views on what needs to be done there. And it's a similar conversation about everything at Epic is just like, okay, where does my freedom extend until it infringes upon yours? What's my responsibility? What's yours? Um, so that we can have this freedom but it's grounded in the reality that you have a responsibility and there will be you know an impact
1: yeah definitely yeah the face mask thing is still just a a thing uh, you hear all the time well if you're a good member of society or whatever but I don't know there's just a lot of that there's so much shaming going on in our society anymore and That's what I would hope that with these type of schools that we can kind of get away from that because I I really feel like a lot of the problems that we have in our society almost came from, well, first of all, the whole uh, hierarchy, you know, of like I'm an adult or I'm an upperclassman so I can bully and pick and and whatever on you as a weak you know, underclassmen type of thing. Mm. And then um, not really listening or caring, but, you know, my way or the highway because I'm stronger than you versus really understanding like some basic principles of being a good person. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like,
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting because sometimes those authoritarian structures can really dominate the more egalitarian structures, even though egalitarian structures are much more like based in human need and like understanding and community and love, but sometimes those authoritarian structures just dominate. It's almost like there's no room for anything else, um, yeah. even if it's a very strong community. It's so interesting
1: yeah well the rest of our interview is supposed to kind of go a different way more of like you know what you're doing in your own personal life but I really love you know just with the COVID-19 we're seeing a huge change in what I mean we have so many parents trying to like rethink what their education is going to look like for their kids and Mm -hmm. teachers you know teachers are not happy with what the proposed classrooms are going to be looking like now because they're like how do I teach in that it's already a struggle and then you're putting all these extra restrictions on me you know what do you feel like a parent or a teacher can do to maybe create this own environment for themselves and for maybe select community members around that are interested in maybe looking at a different style of, I don't know, learning center versus what we've had with our regular traditional schools. Just to clarify,
0: are you asking me like what are some things that like some advice to keep in mind when looking maybe at different options or are you yeah I'm let's trying
1: to let's sure start with advice for looking for different options but what if they don't find that option and they want to mm. create something like this gotcha yeah
0: so i think that a lot of families are definitely considering homeschooling um, or doing something alternative than The traditional model I'm seeing, some public schools are saying, you know, we're going to have five hours in front of the computer every day. Other schools are doing different things, but some schools are doing some pretty, you know, things that I could understand why a lot of uh, parents would go, oh, is there just not some other option for my young person that could be a better use of their time um, that's not just in front of a screen? And healthier for them. (laughs) Exactly. And (laughs) more expansive. So I think, you know, one of the first things I would say is just looking at the, you know, Alliance for Self-Directed Education website. Um, Looking at the resource directory for learning communities in your area, they have a listing that includes homeschool co-ops and communities and also includes like self-directed schools and then just, you know, again, self-directed learning communities, um, which sometimes are schools, sometimes are homeschool resource centers, depending on your state and uh, what the laws are there. For Texas, it's the same. So if you're a homeschooler, you're in private school. If you're in private school, you're a homeschooler. It's a very interesting thing, legally. So I would say the Alliance for Self-Directed Education is a great place to look. Also, the Arrow website, which is, I think, educationrevolution.org. Uh, they have a great listing. If you don't find something that's specifically self-directed, you might find something on there that's more Montessori-based or maybe is like like kind of like we mentioned earlier, a charter school that's more flexible um, or trying to be more creative with what they're doing. So you definitely could find different communities there. If you're, there's still not one in your area, I think that the first thing I would start doing, which is what I kind of started doing um, when I was still teaching public school was I just started hosting like meetups at a local library. And I just put it on Facebook and was like, Hey, does anybody want to talk about like the future of education or like progressive education? Sometimes I put progressive education just because, you know, sometimes alternative education, people think negatively Mm -hmm. with that word, or like, you know, what, you know, let's imagine what next year could look like. And I would just host little like coffee meetups at, you know, different libraries and just meet people that are asking similar questions than me. And sometimes they're a little bit different questions, but oftentimes they have a similar need, especially if you're someone that's a family that's looking for other families, that's wanting to do something collaboratively, but different. I think that would be a great first step is just finding like-minded families in your area and starting to meet up and imagine what learning together could be like figuring out, you know, what are y'all's individual strengths as, as families, and then how could you use that to create some kind of co-op. But I think that before all of those things, I think just really going back to what we were talking about before of just like, you got to grapple with the fact that like, whatever you think learning was supposed to be, you know, or whatever you think kids did in traditional school is not really what's happening, right? So you think a kid's learning from, you know, nine to four, they're not. <laughs> right, yeah. so there's all these things that you you just believe about young people and learning, and that learning looks this way. Learning looks like sitting down in front of a notebook and writing stuff down. um Learning doesn't look fun or learning doesn't look like you know um going on a field trip somewhere, but it really can look so so much like anything. so I think that's a huge thing that adults everywhere are gonna just have to continue to work through is we've romanticized and modeled this idea of this is how learning looks, and we have to just like really let that go, which is a huge process, so I would say. Uh, The biggest thing I would request every parent, this is like not just self-directed, you want to be a self-directed parent, but just any parent, the self-driven child. The self-driven child, amazing, amazing. And it's totally tangible ways to help your kid have more autonomy, even within some systems that are, you know, not ideal. So I think that that's just a great place to start when you're thinking about giving your child more autonomy, whether it's in their education or just at home, because if you're spending more time with your kid at home and there's some, you know, tense stuff going on oftentimes it's because they're they feel like their autonomy is being threatened or that they're not given autonomy you know over their life so I think that that's the work that really needs to be done is like parents and kids also just let's let's really just break down learning doesn't have to look like the way we thought it did um I think that'll open up a lot of doors for people for homeschooling in the fall and in the spring yeah they can really just kind of try to divorce from that mindset
1: Yeah, I think this was another thing I was thinking of that, you know, we hear in the traditional public school system that they put a lot of shaming back onto our families because a lot of our families are dysfunctional and stuff like that. Do you feel like that that's been another side of like working with these kids that maybe they're coming from dysfunctional families who aren't supportive of this style of learning? So then they come back into this... Uh, environment and you know that strong discipline authoritarian things gone and then they they don't know how to deal with all that freedom basically or
0: I think yeah and I think also then sometimes it's it's hard because when you when you show them a way that they can be with an adult that's not that way that has more of that freedom and then they go home to it not being that way they start pushing back right Mm -hmm. sometimes at home So, so then the parents like what the heck my kid's acting more rebellious than they were before. They were already saying they didn't want to go to school. They were already refusing to go to school. And now you've got them saying no to me and, or whatever. Right. And so we've definitely seen, I would say like a huge need for family services uh, within self-directed education. I mean, obviously in general, right. I think there's a huge need for family services and support um, just in general societally. But I think zooming into Epic, I think it's a, it is a really big thing because if the parent doesn't buy in, it's really hard for the young person because then they're constantly like, well, my parent doesn't think I'm really learning." Like my, my actual parents don't think that I'm being a productive member of society and doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's a really hard thing. Like you can, society can tell you that, but then if your parents also feel that way, because that can happen if a kid's in crisis or they're refusing to go to school, the parents just like, where can I put them? Right. And they, the parent may not be, not be interested in really learning about the philosophy of why Epic exists and, you know, all of our backgrounds, they really are just like my kids in crisis and they won't go to school and I don't know what to do. So here, right. Yeah. Um, yeah kind of thing. And I think that can be really challenging for the child and for us because what they really need is a lot of family counseling in addition to their child having an opportunity to be self-directed. Yeah. Because there's so much fear and other things coming into to that home environment that bleed so heavily into what they feel they can do at Epic and just as people. Yeah. So I think that's something that we are building into. We have one, one of our staff members has a um, background in um, social work, which has been a huge benefit to us. But I mean, I've thought about even having like a branch of our nonprofit, having some kind of family services element, because I just think it, it really is important, whether it's, again, you don't, it doesn't have to be that you're doing something harmful to your child, like overtly, right? But it could be like you're covertly, like have this manipulative dynamic or this like codependent yeah. dynamic you don't know about and that you need to work through. And yeah. oftentimes those are created by these other systems of like making sure your kid does their homework, or like you're saying, my child is a direct reflection of myself. And so I have to make sure they're perfect. and there's a lot that can go to that. That's not, you're not trying to not be a helpful parent, but you don't see what you don't see. And then yeah. when you bring them to self-directed and you think that's going to be the solution, it's like, that's part of it.
1: Yeah. But well, I, I think a lot of parents uh, <laughs> feel that they're perfect and that whatever their child is doing is not, and, but when it's somewhat of a direct reflection actually that's one reason i'm trying to shift my like the focus of you know i used to talk a lot about homeschooling and what to do with our kids and all these different models and i i found that so many parents are like well how do i get my kids to do x y and z and i i started kind of pushing like you what you can't make your kids do anything and realizing like okay we are having a parenting crisis like parents have been shoved out of the they've been shoved out of the way so often i mean to the fact that now the school feeds them they i mean they pretty much provide them everything that Uh, you're almost like a weekend babysitter type of thing. I mean, that's what parents have become. So we've lost our skill to parent. You know, we've lost that. We can handle it usually up until the child is like three years old, and then all of a sudden we're wanting to get rid of them and put it back on somebody else. But it really comes down to the fact, like, because we've done this for decades or for many generations, we've lost that innate uh, power to parent and to mentor and to understand our role isn 't necessarily to to make our kids do anything it 's to provide a good model for them, uh, hopefully an extension of what you 're already trying to do with these democratic schools, but that we 're working with our young people and realizing we 're like not perfect ourselves <laughs> you know, we modeling, have, right? yeah, I yeah, got a ton of flaws that i 'm working on as well, and you know working through that and maybe not having that just huge authoritarian, like, I'm the boss, I'm the adult over you, and I get to decide type of attitude.
0: And like you said, that works for a certain amount of time. Like, I think we had, you know, one family that had a 17-year-old join us, and it was like, he refused to go to school. It's like, okay, what are they going to do? Are they going to pick him up and put him in the car? He's 17 years old. He's a pretty strong young human. Yeah. He's not going anywhere. Like he's like, he's not doing it. Like, and it doesn't matter what, you know what I mean? There's not, there's nothing they can take away from him that really honestly matters for him in this, in that specific thing. He's just not going to go. But I think the problem is, is that we still also, even though we've taken the empowerment completely away from the parent and said, okay, here, we're the government, give us your kid and we're going to educate them and leave us alone. And don't don't ask questions, don't bother us because then you're this needy, annoying parent, right? But then on the flip side, if your kid refuses to go to school because school's not a safe place for them, you're going to be the one that gets in charge for truancy and has, you know, fines and then, you know, criminal prosecution and different things like that because you're not willing or you're not able to force physically your 17-year-old to go to school. And that's just the whole thing. It's like, why are we even at that place, right? Why is that even something that's happening? And it totally goes back to the role of the parent and the family versus the role of, like, um, government schooling. And it's just become extremely warped and twisted into each other and out in ways that just don't even make sense but are happening. Yeah. And we, we're used to.
1: Well, and sadly, I see parents that instinctually feel like I should be doing this or that for my child, but they always want to check with the expert, I should say, and they don't follow that mm-hmm. intuition. And then that creates um, like bigger problems. I know a ton of parents that feel like, I, I feel like I should homeschool my kids, but then I talk with the school and they're like, oh, well, that would be bad for these number of reasons, or or just having a feeling like uh, as a parent, I think when you have a child, something gives you that natural <laughs> intuition that maybe um, if we followed more as parents, and I mean, not making kids do that, but just going, okay, well, maybe this isn't working, you know, instead of feeling like there's always an expert that knows better than me as a parent, you know, <laughs> when you... I know- really do feel like that's
0: very true that people it's similar to like me when I left public school teaching of like what am I qualified to do like I don't feel qualified like parents really don't feel qualified to homeschool their
1: child and it's like you really are I feel like they feel extremely disempowered yeah like you're saying well and I I think uh the humility of a parent um and the willingness to want to learn your own curiosity is like your best tool that you can have it's not your knowledge so um completely it's great and your time your willingness to sit down yeah
0: you know, have time with them. Yeah, exactly.
1: All right. Well, what do you feel like to move people in this direction? You gave some great resources. I actually just interviewed uh, the authors for the Self-Driven Child. Hopefully, I'll get to do it with their okay. second book too because it's amazing. But so you've given some great resources. But you know, what are some habits you feel like that could kind of move parents or even teachers into kind of this more democratic way of thinking or this this idea that education is like a way of life and not just a school type of thing.
0: I think one of the habits that I've just started to create for myself is just questioning everything, right? Questioning every system that we currently use, every structure that's in place. Every time I'm like, oh, but you know, X kids should be learning X by X time. It's like, well, let's question that, you know, or we should be doing X, Y, Z. So really just questioning a lot of the status quo, in general, I think mm-hmm. what is a huge habit that's helpful. Um, because it usually leads to a lot of extended learning as well, um, regardless. Yeah. And then I think also just like really being willing to sacrifice comfort for following, your like you're saying, that inner intuition, that inner voice, because it feels really uncomfortable at first. Because again, we've been taught to kind of turn that voice off. But like really leaning into that and saying like, I know this isn't comfortable for me, but it will become comfortable. It actually becomes like over time a very Like you can tap into it easier and then you're like, you know, really in tune and alignment with who you are. Mm -hmm. And then you can, you know, move forward into your purpose easier.
1: Well, and I think a a lot of teachers would, I mean, when you talk about sacrificing comfort, I can't imagine it's, I mean, when you have a a job with the district, you know, you have insurance and you have a guaranteed pay raise and you have all that kind of thing. Um, Isn't that even to sacrifice that comfort? Um, Because when you start one of these centers, You're probably going to start a lower pay scale and stuff like that. Is that?
0: Oh, a hundred percent. That's a huge thing. I mean, that was one of the biggest things that when I would talk to my friends when I was leaving public school, they're like, "What are you doing? You know, you have health insurance. You you know, you're going to continue to get make more money every year. You've got your retirement system that's growing, and you know, I mean, there's so many reasons to stay, right? You have I have all these kids that are you know growing up, but are going to graduate. So I was going to wait till my first kids graduated before I left. Like, there's all these things that you can put weight on yourself and hold yourself back. But the reality is, is like. If you're the person that's willing to step out of that and put yourself out there and like shed some of those like weights, uh, Mm -hmm. you're the one that's going to be out there doing it when no one else is doing it. And so it doesn't matter if you're the perfectly qualified person because you were willing to sacrifice that comfort for your dream. And that's the people that end up making those things come to life, right? Not the people that are just a little bit too scared or, you know, living in that comfort.
1: That's cool. Yeah. And I feel like when we can do that, when we can sacrifice the comfort for that dream, we end up living a happier, healthier life because, you know, not everything that, well, I guess all things don't provide happiness. It's, it's really those those passion driven feelings that we, that we might have.
0: Like for me, it was moving in back with my mom. I didn't love the idea of doing that, but it saved me, you know, a thousand dollars in rent a month for a year so that I could go do my self-directed, you know, sabbatical, visit the different learning communities. Mm-hmm. Um, it was cool. Time, she let you, you know? too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah she took like, me back. It was so great. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. But like, but, you know, that was a, some of my friends were like, oh, my God, you're moving in with your mom at 26. You know what I mean? It, yeah. There's so much of that. That's just like, well, I have the big apartment in Dallas. And, you know, but you have to be willing to cut down those things. Um, there is that financial status part or insecurity, honestly, truly. Um, that come into to play too in your mind, and that's hard to reckon with, yeah
1: well, tell me what do you feel like your long term goals are, and how does that work into the legacy that you hoped? I know when when I, ever I ask a really young person this they're like uh, i'm not really even thinking about that, but right I mean um, and i don't even feel
0: like that. I feel like a young person in so many ways, but i 'm like oh my gosh i've like, I've got so much to do, and I'm running out of time. I already feel that way, so <laughs> I know what you mean. I saw this question, and I was like, Oh my legacy, oh my gosh um, I think that, like, long-term, I would love to just support and help create more learning communities in the South, so I would love to be a part of creating multiple, either EPIC style or just, like, maybe supporting in consulting, helping other people create learning communities while continuing to grow EPIC and possibly have multiple centers um, of EPIC. I think also what I'd mention to you, too, part of long-term would be, you know, having a family services element having an element where we can bring in maybe maybe having a summer camp opportunity for all kids, even kids in public school, to experience self-directed learning um, in some kind of environment like that. That'd be cool. Doing a lot of giving back is something that I really see Epic doing long-term and us doing long-term as a self-directed movement. But we're still at the point where we're kind of building ourselves up. But I think there is a lot of ways that we can give back. So that's definitely a part of my long-term vision for Epic and then just for myself in general. Another thing I'm really passionate about long-term is, is teacher liberation. So I know you and I talked about that a little bit, but I could talk about that forever. Uh, um, yeah. Just helping teachers, you know, like, like you said, like we go from being in school to teaching in school. And, and so just really helping us like say, okay, you don't have to be stuck. And if you're not happy, it's okay. And there's nothing wrong with you. And it doesn't mean you don't care about kids. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So even just that whole like helping teachers, Divorce from school if they're not happy in the traditional environment. And whether it's moving into self-directed or doing something different, um, I think it's important because I think unhappy teachers, it doesn't help anybody. Yeah.
1: Um, I think there's a lot of brainwashing among teachers. I mean, I remember years ago, Mm. my son was like a baby. And I remember telling somebody that my sister was going to be in a charter school and the teacher was just like, devastated, you know, how can you take money away from students? And, uh, you know, and as I've grown, I'm like, well, really, it's sad that you feel that way, because that gives more job opportunities, you know, so you don't have to rely on that teacher's union to make sure that you have a job that you have, just like every other profession, you have autonomy to move and be in the place you want to be, you know, I mean, how... Horrible would it be if we just had one company that you had to go work at regardless of what was going on in that company or how that the the culture of that company or whatever you were stuck there I mean how like I just think that's that would be devastating to your soul almost you know what I mean like but I, I feel like like it perpetuates itself there's so much like almost brainwashing you know of what happens either in unions or I'm not really sure. Maybe you as a I teacher. I mean, in the teacher's lounge, in the teacher's lounge, it happens. I mean, I think brainwashing for like what you can do as an educator, for
0: sure. I think that there's also the level of like, oh, you're going to leave the kids. Like, you know, they really need you. And yeah. it's like, you know, even if you're, you know, it, there's just that whole part too. There's lots of layers of it. And then again, feeling unfit to do anything else. If you've pretty much been in education your entire life. So yeah. to think that you're going to go out and do something different is like, you know, on another level, pretty pretty scary um well so I, I think, think that too scared. the
1: the fact that a lot um, of people don't feel like as an educator you can make money it's almost like you're being shamed like um, this is all about um I, I don't i don't know how to describe it but they almost look at themselves like uh, in a in a way that like it puffs their chest up to think like, well, I don't do my job for money. You know, I'm yes, here. To, your service, but, you're, you're serving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, I like, I look at teachers pay teachers and there's teachers there that when they come up with amazing, you know, ways of helping their students, they are making money. And so I, I think we can even think like, wow, let's look outside the box. Like this idea of abundance versus like uh, I've got to stay here, you know, and sacrifice money over you know what I mean like it's almost like this really uh, scarcity mindset <laughs> in a way so. it is and it's like
0: I'm sacrificing for these kids and you, you become almost like a little bit of a victim um, uh-huh, yeah. or like a martyr a little bit and and that can be a very ego serving thing yeah I, I think with at, teachers, it's, it's such a hard thing. So I think that that's something that my heart is just really drawn to because I think in self-directed education, and like you mentioned earlier with this shift and people probably moving more towards homeschooling and alternatives to traditional education, um, we're going to have a huge need for facilitators. Yeah, self-directed facilitators. We're going to have a need. It's I already have a need. I, I need somebody next year if you know anybody. Um, for <laughs> Epic. Um, I so, wish it lived closer. <laughs> so, right? Come on. So the thing is, is that we need to be as self-directed, you know, people in this movement, we need to be creating pathways. It doesn't need to be like, you know, as convoluted as, as it felt for me when I was leaving. It can be, there can be pathways that are, make it more possible and, and less scary for mm-hmm. future educators to move into self-directed education and I did a talk for Arrow about that because I just think that we need to have mentors in self-directed education that are willing to be mentors for free to to teachers wanting to move into this field so that they can have, you know, because I had Blake that I could call. I had Ken and Joel that I could pick up the phone and call and say, okay, I'm thinking about leaving. Like, what the heck am I supposed to do? Like, you know, and how long should I visit this learning community versus this learning community? And what do you think I can offer from this, this, this? You know, it was so helpful to have mentors. So I think that teachers just like kids are stuck too, and they need people to support them
1: in leading just as much as young people do. Yeah, it's that piece of collaboration again that I think has kind of been a a thread throughout like self-directed learning centers for sure, that collaboration. We need that among teachers for sure. That's great. Mm -hmm. Well, what final parting advice would you give our listeners and then give us your contact information so people, I mean, if they want to collaborate with you, they know how. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think like, again, I'll just
0: like reiterate a little bit. The biggest thing is just like getting uncomfortable and putting yourself out there always. I think that the biggest thing I've seen is that when you just are always talking about and putting yourself in situations where you are immersed in your passions, everybody sees you lit up and they want to be involved. They want to somehow connect with you. They want to, or later they will. Um, And so that's what I've seen is that even though there was really no clear path for me to leave public education, what I did do was that I just kept putting myself out there and asking people and talking to people and going places and feeling uncomfortable, but talking about what I believed in. And that's really what completely created the opportunities, all of the opportunities that I've had um, so far and has allowed me to really live out my dream. So I would just encourage everybody else to do that as much as they can. Um, yeah. Work and put your put yourself out there, put your passion out there, and everything will come back
1: to you. I think. Yeah, I just did a podcast with Jeremy from Crashco, and he talks about like learning out loud. Like sometimes, if we, like you said, just start asking questions to people and really start that learning process out loud, it can help you maybe find the resources that you're needing, or at least like lead you to other questions or other resources that might be helpful in your own personal development. Um, definitely
0: a hundred percent a hundred percent and then you know just really valuing all of the people that have helped you along the way I think is just a huge piece too is just letting them know right because like sometimes you see how big of an impact they had but maybe they don't see it yet so definitely also telling them because they're the wind at your back right like
1: definitely I love that well and then your contact information
0: yeah so epic's website is epic life learning we're also on instagram and facebook and then if you want to find me The website is CassidyYoungHands.com, or you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at Cassidy Alice Younghands.
1: That's awesome. So today we've been chatting with uh, Cassidy Younghands. Uh, To find out more about her, you can find her on Facebook. I love the EpicLifeLearningCommunity.com. I'm going to link it up with our website as well, if I end up getting some of these wrong as we're talking about them. But thank you so much, Cassidy, for coming on and really connecting with The Luminous Mind to teach us about self-directed education. I really appreciate it.
0: I've had so much fun being on this podcast with you. It's been so great. I love you guys' vision at Luminous Mind. And I think that everything that you guys have created so far is super exciting. So I can't wait to hear the final result. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Music featured in this episode from Scott Holmes. To learn more about our podcast, check us out at theluminousmind.net.